This program is called Deep in Scripture because we believe that it's important to be deep in the Word of God. We believe that the Scriptures, the Bible, is the inspired, infallible Word of God. And we base our lives on that. In fact, the world is covered with people that base their lives on this book we call the Bible. But why this book? In fact, more specifically, why the specific books within this book? Why this collection of books? Why not other books? Why was this index closed? And why do we base our life on this particular contents of books? That's what we'll talk today on Deep in Scripture. Well, welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, and we're coming to you over EWTN Radio. Thank you for tuning in. Or you may be listening to us on the variety of other ways you can hear this program on the Internet. It's amazing what the Lord is doing today. Uh, And this is one of our meager attempts to use the technology for the good it was intended and not, in some ways, the other ways that people use the Internet and, and the radio airwaves. Thank you for joining us. Uh, on this particular program, we talk about the importance of being deep in the Word of God and making sure we interpret it correctly. And that means looking at the Word through the eyes of the teacher through which we receive the Word, and that's the church. And we'll talk a bit about that today. On this program, I invite uh, guests to talk about scriptures that awaken them to a deeper walk with Christ and His church And on today's program, I invite a good friend whose name is Gary Mashuda, and he drove down from Michigan to join us here at our studio in central Ohio. He came from that state up north. Uh, We won't won't get into those other rivalries that arise this time of year, Gary, right? But uh, Gary is an author, a speaker, a teacher on Catholic apologetics and evangelization. His most recent books include Why Catholic Bibles Are Bigger, The Untold Story of the Lost Books of the Protestant Bible, and How to Wolf-Proof Your Kids, A Catholic Parent's Guide to Keeping Your Kids Catholic. He's a regular speaker at Catholic groups, organizations, and conferences around the United States and Canada. And he has a website, gmashuda at hotmail.com. That's, that's, email. that's his email. Sorry, Gary. And uh, But his, his uh, website is hands on apologetics.com one word hands on apologetics.com and i encourage you to go to that uh, i want to remind you that we have a website associated with this program called deepinscripture.com where you can connect with all the old programs a great variety of resources find out a lot about the coming home international coming home network international and you can watch today's program live as gary joins me here in the studio uh, as gary contemplated which scripture he has the same disease that so many of my former my recent guests have had and that is they've got about 150 they want to cover in in one hour and that's so true with Gary we could especially the topic that Gary and I will will look at today the issue of the canon Uh, but he chose a couple he narrowed down the list Lisa's starting points so let me read these particular scriptures, we'll take a break and then Gary can join us. He chose as his first text, maybe the, uh, the initial text to begin with is Romans chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Let me read that. Paul writes, What advantage is there then in being a Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every respect, for in the first place they were entrusted with the utterances of God. And that's from the New American Bible translation. And now the second text, which uh, Gary's chosen for today. Let me make sure I have the entire... Yes. It comes from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. And, and Gary, I'm glad we chose this because this is the key passage that I used when I was a Protestant minister to defend sola scriptura. We'll talk about that in a moment. Let me read. This is Paul writing to Timothy. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to instruct you for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, 
for reputation, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that one who belongs to God may be competent, equipped for every good work, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Don't forget to watch the Journey Home program with Marcus Grodi on EWTN. Each week, Marcus meets new guests who have journeyed to the Catholic faith from many backgrounds. Be challenged and encouraged as they witness to how their love for the truth of Jesus Christ has brought them into full communion with the Catholic Church. That's the Journey Home program on EWTN, live on Monday evenings at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. If you enjoy the Journey Home television program on EWTN, you'll want to purchase a copy of Marcus Grodi's book, Journey's Home. Journey's Home contains the conversion stories of men and women who, as a result of their surrender to Jesus Christ, heard a call to follow him more completely in the Catholic Church. Many of them were Protestant pastors or missionaries. Others were laymen who, though working in secular jobs, took their calling to serve Christ in the world very seriously. To order your copy of Marcus Grodi's book, Journeys Home, simply visit our website at www.chresources.com or call us toll-free at 1-800-664-5110. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, and I'm joined today by Gary Mashuda. Gary, welcome to Deep in Scripture. Hey, thanks for having me here. It's glad to have you drive down from that state up north. Yeah, I drove down to Ohio. <laughs> <laughs> it was a, a trial for a, a northerner to come down into the state below, right? <laughs> that's right, especially with the instructions garbled. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. that's right. But you made it here, and we're glad to have you here. Gary, um, I want to get us into this because there's so much that we could talk about on this program. And I, I really believe that the topic that that you've dedicated a lot of your writing to and your speaking to is crucial just to the idea of being deep in Scripture. Absolutely. I mean, let me ask you this just bluntly. Why is the issue of canon so important just to the concept of being deep in Scripture? Well, you, you can't be deep in Scripture unless you first know what the Scripture is. And so the question of which books belong in the Bible is paramount for any, any Bible Christian, any Christian that wants to soak in the Word of God. Because if, the, the can't, if there's not enough books, then we're missing Scripture that we could get it deep into. And if there's books in there that might be spurious, then you know, we might be relying on mere human writings and not writings that were written by the Holy Spirit primarily. Yeah, what was it the... Uh, the, the Protestant New Testament theologian. Um, I don't want to mention his name because I might refer to the wrong name or wrong guy, but he, he basically, when challenged on this issue, he's a very honest, sincere, faithful follower of Jesus Christ, but he recognized the problem. Mm -hmm. And didn't he say something like it was a, 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 a fallible collection of infallible books? Yeah, yeah, that... The best we can uh, we can say about the scriptures that we hope we sincerely believe, based on the evidence, based on our own intellects, that this is the word of God and only the word of God, and so we have a fallible collection, possibly erroneous idea. Of, that was his perspective. Yeah, I mean of, not ours, right, but that <laughs> right, and that's the advantage of being Catholic is that we can have uh, an infallible collection of infallible books. All right, let's let's uh, and, and we're opening a big big subject. And uh, and let me remind you, if you want to uh, write us, you can you can do that at uh, radio at chnetwork.org. If you have a if you're listening and you have a question deals with this, we'd love to to take your email. But Gary, this first passage from Romans, for example, why does this act as a good stepping stone into the into this issue? Sure. Well, many Christians have this understanding that there was already a completed. Uh, Bible already bound, you know, a uh, set of books that was authoritative throughout Judaism, 
And so when they read passages like Romans 3, 1 and 2, where Paul says that, uh, you know, he asked the question, what benefits there being a Jew or what's the value of circumcision? Paul says much because they were entrusted with the oracles of God. And they see that, that phrase, the oracles of God, as being a reference to kind of a bound, closed, fixed, official canon of the Jews. And the difficulty with that is, well, the biggest difficulty I have is, what do you mean by the Jews? See, we understand Judaism because we're familiar with rabbinical Judaism, which at one time was just the only party of Jews that survived uh, the Second Revolt. But what about first century Judaism? Because that's really what matters. What was the canon during the time of Christ? Mm -hmm. What were the oracles that were entrusted to the Jews? Well, the problem is that when you look at Judaism in that era, you find that there was not one Judaism, but there were many Judaisms. Mm -hmm. There was, we see in scripture, we see the Pharisees, the Sadducees, uh, the Zealots, we see the Samaritans, and then we know outside of scripture, the Essenes, uh, there was a community that used uh, uh, certain uh, books from Solomon that aren't considered canonical. Uh, and each of these parties believed that they were the one genuine expression of Judaism. But the problem is many of these groups held different canons. For example, the Samaritans and Sadducees only held to the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. And they rejected the prophets and the writings. Um, the Essenes apparently not only accepted most of the Protestant canon, they might not have accepted Esther. Uh, but they also may have accepted, I believe, Tobit and uh, Sirach and some other secular books, like the books that they wrote as, script, as inspired scripture. So you have these different parties, each one with their own set of canonical books, you know, their own set of sacred books. But what I tell people is, which group really matters? Which group should Christians follow? And the answer is this one Jewish sect known as the Christians is what we should follow. Because <laughs> ultimately it's Jesus and his inspired apostles that it was their duty to hang on, hand on to the church that they found uh, the correct canon, the correct contents of Scripture. And that church manifested throughout history. In fact, I've, I've wondered whether the this wide collection of Jewish groups, if any of them viewed what we call the Old Testament in the same way that we view the inspiration and infallible inspired right. Bible. You know what I mean? I mean, sure. yeah. I, I think if I were to guess, I would say they may have looked at the Pentateuch in that way, yeah. but it seems to me that when they, when some of those groups challenged Jesus, the question was not just what the the text said, but that the interpretations of it were sure. were lifted up almost equivalent to inspired and fallible authority as the more smaller canonical scripture. Uh, yeah, sure. Yeah, and one argument often used is, well, Jesus quotes these texts as scripture. He says the scripture says it is written. So obviously everyone knew that those are scripture. Mm -hmm. The problem with that is Jesus really doesn't formally cite that many books of the Old Testament. And if you look carefully, you'll see he only cites from the canon of those particular groups. For example, when the Sadducees approach him about uh, uh, certain questions, he will only refer to the Pentateuch. He never refers to the other books, mm -hmm. and he'll cite them as scripture. Mm -hmm. So it's helpful in a sense because you can say, well, a few of these books it seems that they all enjoyed them, you know, inspired status. But uh, the problem is you can't con reconstruct any kind of canon from it because there's just so few of these citations. So when Paul in Romans 3 begins, what advantage is there in being a Jew? He is, I'm assuming, not referring to any particular group within the wider. Right. He's sure. predicting in general right. to those that were a part of the people of God. Right the you know abraham isaac and jacob and, and that whole stream of folk right. who well, remember romans 2 i mean the whole yeah. question was the gentiles have the law written in their hearts while the jews have the law explicitly but they don't follow it mm -hmm. and so at the end paul says what it doesn't matter whether you're circumcised or not what matters is obeying the commandments so the question is well what's the value of being circumcised and he says you are given the explicit commands of god 
And by that, he doesn't mean, you know, the King James Bible parachuted out of heaven. <laughs> it means that God spoke to the Jews. Now, this opens that wider question of canon, mm-hmm. and you've written a book on it. Um, let's, if we could, let's slip to the next passage. Okay. As an example. Is, okay. that, is, that, is that fine? Is that fine? Yeah. Because this next passage, Second uh, Timothy 3, 6, uh, 14 through 17, uh, is... I mean, it was a section of scripture, Gary, that I would use from the pulpit to give an example of the, I never crossed my mind that there was anything wrong with using this passage to promote sola scriptura. Right. Because I, I read this passage as saying that the Bible, inspired by God, is, in fact, some translate it to say sufficient. Mm-hmm. We can get into that question. But let me read the whole section that leads up to that, and beginning with verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to instruct you for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for refutation, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that one who belongs to God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Right. And there you have the threefold ministry of the church. Because Paul just doesn't say, follow the scriptures and reconstruct Christianity, whatever you see it's in the writings. He says, first, Timothy, you have to hold on to all that I taught you. Well, how did he teach him? Through writing? Yeah, perhaps, but also orally, right? And I like the phrase, that he gains confidence by knowing from whom he has learned it. In other words, there has to be an authorized teaching authority along with the oral tradition. And then finally, the scriptures, which, as you said, is useful, it's helpful. Mm -hmm. Uh, And why is it useful and helpful? Because it's also included with those other two steps as well. Well, let's, for example, verse 15, Paul is talking to Timothy and he's reminding him that Timothy had been acquainted with the sacred writings from childhood. So how does that statement just alone cause a problem for sola scriptura folk? Oh, well, you would have to, I wonder, in, in that context, what scriptures did Timothy have available? And if he's saying that only those scriptures are sufficient for teaching salvation and so on, you run into a problem because the only scriptures that Timothy would probably have would be the Old Testament, which brings us back to the beginning. How do you know whether you have the Old yeah. Testament? And does that mean that the New Testament's superfluous? You know, because uh, if he's saying that that's sufficient, then you have a big problem as far as the canon. Yeah, there's no set collection even at that point of what makes up the Old Testament, as you mentioned a, l- right. a little bit before. Um, but it's also the apostolic witness is how we know what the scripture is itself. In fact, one of my favorite passages, I, be, I was trying to thumb through this, and I, I found it Second Peter uh, chapter 1. Pa, uh, Peter's saying, he's talking about the Mount of Transfiguration. Mm-hmm. And uh, w- he says, we saw his glory. We are eyewitnesses of his glory. And then what does he say after? Now, of course, the Mount of Transfiguration is seen in the Synoptic Gospels. It's all there, right? Um, Or, excuse me, it's seen in the Gospels. Mm -hmm. But that alone's not sufficient because he says, because we're eyewitnesses, because we've seen his glory, we know what went on, you do well to follow us as a lamp shining in darkness. So it's that apostolic witness, not that it adds to the Word of God per se, but the apostles in the early church is the guarantors of what exactly the scripture is. And so if you reject the historic church, if you reject the apostolic witness, you really, you're just left with the word and you could dispute whether, you know, Jesus was glorified on the Mount of Transfiguration or not or or any other passage in scripture. In uh, Acts chapter 2, the Uh, after that first major conversion, you know, after Peter's first sermon, and they wonder, what are we going to do? And and Peter says, well, just get on your knees and accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and you'll be saved. 
Of course, that's not what he says at all. He <laughs> right. says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Uh, and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And it goes on. And then, But the point I want to point out is, verse 42, they're gathered. What is the focus of their gathering? It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching right. and fellowship, thirdly to the breaking of bread, and fourthly to the prayers. Right. And of course, there we see the core of, of the Mass right. it is all there. But it, we don't see them even mentioning in that this uh, kind of focusing on even the Old Testament scriptures. It's not yeah, really sure. mentioned there. The way so many today have, have been focused on the Bible is all we need is just the Bible. No, they're focusing on the apostolic teaching. Sure. And that's our, our ultimate guide is uh, it has to be Christ-centered and apostolically-centered. Uh, for example, that's why I, um, I believe you can't find any examples of Christians uh, testing apostolic teaching by the scriptures. You don't find any anything in the New Testament of Protestantism per se. And I know there's the, the passage in Berea with the Bereans, which you're well familiar with. Sure. <laughs> so I, I use this test case. It's called uh, Lunchtime in Berea. Okay. <laughs> if you can imagine, Paul comes to the, the Jews in Berea. Okay. And he says, uh, he, he gives the gospel. They say, hey, we believe Jesus is the Messiah. Then, he, then Paul says, great, let's break for lunch and we'll have some ham sandwiches. Okay. <laughs> now, what would the Bereans do if they were Bible believing Christians? They would what? They would pull out their, their Pentateuch, their Tanakhs, right? Yeah. And they'd look up in the Old Testament, well, where does it say that we can eat pork? And what you find is nowhere it says you can eat pork. But you, in fact, it says you can eat pork in the Old Testament. Yeah. So they say, you know, oi, Paul, you know, we can't eat pork. The sola scriptura, you know, that's, that's not acceptable. And then Paul says, oh, well, you misunderstand. You see, Peter one day was out on his porch, and a sheet came down, and a voice said, you know, eat, slaughter and eat. Yeah. So all things are clean. Well, if you don't accept apostolic testimony, you basically would end up being, it would yeah. be a truncated gospel. The only way to correctly understand the Old Testament is ultimately to come to Christ and the apostles and sit at their feet and accept. Otherwise, if you test what they say by the scriptures, you end up with... Well, uh, the Jerusalem Council was all about the Sola Scriptura group, if you want to say it. Sure, yeah. The Judaizers, who didn't want to change a dot or a tittle of their tradition as it was expressed in the written, their written aspect of the canon, right. versus the apostolic witness, which had the authority of the Holy Spirit to decide which of those old disciplines had to be followed or not. Right, absolutely. And that really causes us to focus when we're look, asking the question, well, which books belong in the Bible? Uh, because after all, Protestants are missing seven books. Uh, Jews are missing seven books. Uh, Orthodox may have a couple extra books than we do. What's the correct canon? Ultimately, we have to focus on Jesus and the apostles. What was their canon? What was the canon they handed on to the church? I've got to ask you one more scripture before we take a break. <laughs> okay. and, and, and we got a couple hours. It's I fun. know. That's right. <laughs> we'll cram a couple hours into this 40 minutes that we've got left. Or, but uh, Luke 24, verse 27. Gary, I'll just read it for you and quickly. What, is, what does this verse tell us about the topic that we're dealing with? Where beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Exactly. Yeah, that Christ is seen throughout the whole Old Testament. And ask yourself the question, wouldn't they turn around and use the same scriptural text for those who the, they teach that to the followers? Yeah. If you put that with the Second Timothy passage, where he says there all scripture is, is inspired and useful for teaching, especially if you use the translation, which some Protestant translations have, that's sufficient. Well, then why wasn't it back in Luke that they couldn't just read the Old Testament and just know it? Jesus had to point it all out, explain. The point being that the Old Testament alone, sola Old Testament, right. is not sufficient, which is the same problem with the Ethiopian, Ethiopian eunuch sure. who needed Philip to explain what this meant. Right, right. 
And if anything, that's one of the reasons we end up with the apostolic tradition that almost all the early church fathers were basing what they were writing on Old Testament quotes, mm-hmm. but giving the New Testament understanding Absolutely. focused and based around Christ. Let's take a break and we'll come back and talk more about the canon of Scripture. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, joined today by Gary Mashuda, and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. EWTN.com is online with program information, the latest news, Pope Benedict XVI, plus tools for living the faith like prayers, Catholic Q&A, and other resources. Log on today to EWTN.com. Next time on EWTN Live, who do we follow when we feel persecuted? St. Thomas More in the face of death followed the footsteps of Christ. Join Father Mitch when he talks with Dr. Samuel Gregg about St. Thomas More, saint, scholar, statesman, and martyr. That's on the next EWTN Live. EWTN Live with Father Mitch Pacwa is seen and heard around the world. For dates and times in your area, log on to EWTN.com. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host, joined today by Gary Mashuda, and we're dealing with the issue of the canon of the New Testament, canon of the Bible. In other words, why these books? Why only these books? How can we be certain that these books, particular list of books, are the inspired books that we can base our entire lives on? Basically, we're basing eternity on our belief that we can trust that these books are inspired. And so the question is, uh, uh, Gary, uh, you know, why these books in the New Testament? And I thought it might be good to uh, quote from the last chapter of the last letter of Peter, in which Peter writes, um, uh, so also our beloved brother Paul wrote to you concerning according to the wisdom given him, speaking of this as he does in all his letters, there are some things in them hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Mm -hmm. Is Paul, when he writes this, referring with the words other scriptures and the letters of Paul to some kind of completed canon that dropped down from the clouds and had King Jimmy written on the outside. Yeah, I mean, sure. as I know people that believe that. Sure. Well, yeah, again, we can't really tell the extent of the canon uh, simply on those words. So all we know is that there is a category of, of writings that the Christians believe is inspired scripture, including Paul. Uh, but we don't know whether it's the same letters of Paul, you know, so on and so forth. If someone wanted to look at that really critically, it would be really tough to pull out of that verse exactly which books. But it does tell us that there is a collection of scriptures that all Christians believe to be inspired, and that they include also the New Testament in it. Let me add into this, because I'm no expert on this issue, Gary. You're the expert. You wrote the book. <laughs> God help us. <laughs> <laughs> um, but on my own journey into the church dealing with this, because I was such a solo scriptura Calvinist uh, one of the things that awakened me in my reading of the early church fathers was their use of this word scripture. Hmm. And we are so accustomed. When we say the word scripture, it has a capital S, and we know exactly it means this book, this collection of of books, and not my books or your books that you wrote, or not other books from the Old Testament, and regardless of what the Da Vinci Code tries to, to declare, no, there was a limitation. We know it. But what we find in the early church is that the word scripture was used in a much wider sense also. Sure, yeah. The commentaries of St. Augustine, the writings of the early church fathers, the word for the writings, scriptures, was used to refer to a great uh, wide breadth of material, which was why we had a problem. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, because, um, well, Scripture, you know, in Greek basically just means writings. And even in the New Testament, sometimes it's argued, well, the Deuterocanon is not cited in the New Testament, so therefore 
it can't be inspired. Well, you have a problem because the New Testament also cites books that no one today accepts as inspired, like yeah. uh, the book of Enoch quoted in Jude and so on. Uh, and so in a sense, and it's quoted authoritatively, Paul's quotes uh, from pagan philosophers. So does he mean that that's scripture? Well, no. What it means is that they believed it'd be authoritative writings, perhaps for the audience. But what we want is really what did they consider to be authoritative, you know, from a Christian perspective. And I believe, and history bears this out, and certainly the church does, that that would include what we call the deuterocanonical books, mm -hmm. along with all the other Old Testament books of the Protestant Bible. This uh, particular passage that we quoted from Second Peter um, at least implies at this point, when you th if you put yourself back in the time, that Peter, who we presume wrote this, had a high view of Paul's writing, included them in this, at least with the other scriptures. Sure. But, but he wasn't equating the phrase other scriptures to mean what we've come to understand as this limited collection of right. inspired books. But just the fact that, that this letter, as Peter is writing it, isn't bound up right. with those letters from Paul sure is proof positive that there wasn't a canon of new testament scripture at the time right yeah, exactly i mean some people try to make hopscotch back and forth in the new testament and say well here we see that the letters of paul are inspired and there's other ones and then they go to luke is quoted here and there and you could kind of piece together and then we just know revelation is inspired because it quotes a lot of old testament books but you know that falls apart because like you said, it implies that the canon isn't closed. What book says that Second Peter is inspired? Everything's predicated upon that assumption. Well, how do we get to a canon then? Okay. I mean, we could push this envelope a long way and end up with where sure. the Da Vinci Code and others said, well, you know, there's this, why trust any group of books? Why trust any of them, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. So. Well, first of all, maybe point out the absurdity of the sola scriptura that's rejected the authority of the Catholic Church. Yeah, we were talking about this earlier, that uh, sola scriptura states, and this is the Protestant understanding, that this, the scripture is the highest authority. It's the norm that sets all norms and the standard that sets all standard. And therefore, we don't judge the scriptures. The scriptures judge us. And, which is a very noble task. You know, one of my favorite books is Louis Bouillet's uh, Spirit and Forms of Protestantism, oh, yes, which right. he goes through and he shows that, you know, many of the things that motivated the Reformers were true and good, but Protestantism kind of undermined that. And the same thing's true with Sol Scriptura. How do you come to a canon? But some Protestants will say, well, we can tell what the canon is by looking at the Scripture and studying history, and we can more or less make out that it was all this truncated Jewish canon that came out of the second century. But the problem is, then we're using our intellects to determine what is the norm that sets all norms. In other words, mm -hmm. you've suddenly raised your intellect above the scriptures to determine it, <laughs> and then use that scripture to determine everything else. And ironically, and I argue this in my book, is that the only way to truly exalt the scriptures, even above our own human intellects, is if the canon of Scripture was something that was passively received or given to us by Jesus and the apostles. And that's what we believe as Catholics, that, it, that the Catholic Church has received these Scriptures from Jesus and the apostles and it hands it down and manifests these Scriptures throughout history. The um, assumption that so many of us have received, almost like... Paul describes it to Timothy here. You know, from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. You know, I remember preaching that to my congregations as if we could agree with that. Mm -hmm. You know, from childhood we had a Bible given to us from you know first communion, and it's we've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to instruct you for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. I mean, that preaches because we can experientially affirm that. Right. But we make this direct connect that what Paul was talking to Timothy is equivalent to what we have now. Right. And so talk a bit about how did we get to where we are now right. that we can, why can we trust these yeah, how, books? How do we know? Yeah, sure. Uh, well, there are several ways you can. 
Uh, one way that I like is if you look at how the New Testament uses the Deuterocanonical books. Now, this is very important to note. I'm not saying that simply because the New Testament alludes to or, or mentions a book, therefore it has to be inspired. But what I'm saying is when there is an allusion or something, you have to look at the context and see how that, does it tell us anything about what they believe the source is? And one of my favorite passages is uh, Matthew 27, 43. It's Jesus is on the cross and the chief priests, scribes and elders are mocking him. And they say, uh, you know, they're saying, let's see if God rescues him. And then it says, uh, it's very interesting at the very end of 43, it says, uh, let's see if God rescues him uh, because he claimed to be the son of God. Yeah. So f- because of his claim to be the son of God, the chief priest scribes and others say, okay, this is a great test case. Let's see if God rescues him. Well, where in the Protestant Old Testament do you see any promise that God would rescue and vindicate the true just one who proclaims to be the son of God? You look through the scriptures, it's not there. But if you look in Wisdom chapter 2, it's there explicitly. Hmm. Wisdom 2 says, For if the just one be the Son of God, God will rescue him from his foes. So now we have to ask ourselves, did, how did the chief priests, scribes, and elders, how did they get this? Well, they might have reasoned it, but in the Old Testament, I mean, lots of people were called the sons of God. Judges were called the Beni Elohim, right? Sons of God. But God didn't always rescue them from their foes. So it can't just be reason. Maybe they had wisdom as an apocryphal text. Maybe they didn't believe it was inspired. But that's problematic, too, because can you imagine if there was a false messiah and we said, for it says in 4th Maccabees, you know, <laughs> God will do this if it's true. Everybody look at us like, You're, that's ridiculous. And it's blasphemous. You know, God never promised such a thing. Well, the implication, I think, is that they must have accepted wisdom, too, as a prophetic text. You know, mm-hmm. another good one is um, Hebrews eleven thirty five. Now, remember, Hebrews is the great faith chapter, and I believe it's Hebrews eleven three says uh, of it the the ancient the elders were well attested. Okay, now you ask yourself, okay, well, where were they attested of? Where did we hear about these people that they're going to the writer of Hebrews is going to talk about? Well, if you read it. He talks about Adam, he talks about creation, he talks about Enoch, he talks about all these biblical figures. Now what's odd is near the end he starts talking about just exploits, things that people did. And he says in verse 35 that uh, some uh, accepted torture for the sake of a better resurrection. Now if you search your Protestant Bible, you will never find an example anywhere of anyone explicitly accepting martyrdom for the sake of the, a better resurrection. But that's exactly what you find in Second Maccabees. <laughs> so you have a problem here. You know, I, I think if I were reading this book as a Protestant, I would say, do I have the right Bible? I mean, where is that in Scripture? <laughs> and the answer is, well, apparently the, the writer of Hebrews is using the Septuagint, which also included Second Maccabees. Otherwise, you have a problem, because nowhere else in, in Hebrews 11 uh, does he bring in a non-biblical character? These are all biblical characters. And to bring in somebody just out of the past, out of Jewish history, uh, just wouldn't fit because this is all about supernatural faith. It's not about secular history. So, uh, you know, again, you have to think, well, what was the Bible? What were they using? When I was a Protestant minister, I remember, you know, a, a scripture was the foundation of everything. I preached and taught in a way I led uh, the, the, my people but I remember encountering the problem when I would when I would read in the New Testament a quote from the Old Testament, and I'd see the quote, mm-hmm. and so I'd be curious what was the context in the Old Testament. I'd find the quote in the Old Testament, and more often than not, it wasn't the same. Right. Yeah. The words weren't the same, and for most of the time that I was a Protestant. It never struck me why the New Testament quote of an Old Testament scripture was different. Right. Now, why was that, Gary? It was because you were wrong, using the wrong collection and the wrong translation of the Old Testament. You weren't using the same, which would be the Septuagint, most likely. Although they do use other sources, but it's dominated by the Septuagint. In fact, I, I'm glad you mentioned that because 
if you look in that same chapter 11, and I'm going to have to research this too to make sure that this is solid, but in chapter 11 during the great of faith Hebrews? chapter, uh, Hebrews, yeah, excuse right? me, Hebrews 11, uh-huh. uh, it talks about uh, Enoch. You know, Enoch walked with God and he was seen no more because God took him. And boy, if I could find the verse, you know, I wouldn't be a good Catholic. Oh, yeah, verse 5? Okay, yeah. And he says, and before that, it was attested that he was the friend of God. Now, where in Scripture is Enoch attested as being the friend of God? If you go to that back to Genesis 5, it doesn't say anything about him being friend of God. But in the Septuagint, it says instead of him walking with God, it says he's friend of God, yeah. and God took him. So again, do you have the right Bible? Why, where did this come from? And also there's some chap- a couple of chapters in Wisdom that actually talk about Enoch being the friend of God. So again, you know, it's the Septuagint text that they were using. And, and what's interesting is the implication there because he says that it was attested that he was the friend of God. Ask yourself, where is it attested? Hmm. So in a sense, he's kind of giving the approbation to uh, the Septuagint. So, yeah, and just to make sure, just to make sure the uh, the audience, especially if it's the first time you've turned into as deep in scripture, the difference is the Septuagint Bible, Old Testament translation of the Bible, was a Greek translation, which included all the books called Deuterocanonical books that are in the present day Catholic Bibles, as that canon was established at the end of the fourth century. The reason we see differences is that in the New Testament documents, which were originally Greek, they are translating directly from the Septuagint version. Sure. Whereas most of our Old Testaments in the modern translations use the Hebrew version of the Bibles, which are slightly worded, sometimes even content-wise, slightly different from the Septuagint version. And one of the disconnects we have, and I'm not sure how it came about, so when we imagine the early church, we think of them as Jews that spoke Hebrew or spoke Aramaic. And one of the questions, well, obviously they, they read the Bible in, in Hebrew or Aramaic. They didn't read it in Greek. But modern research has shown actually that, uh, you know, unlike the Passion of the Christ where it's just Aramaic and, and <laughs> Hebrew, that chances are Jesus and the apostles probably knew and spoke Greek as well because that was the lingua franca of the, the empire. We know that uh, there's Greek synagogues in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem was as Hellenized as any other Middle Eastern, ancient Middle Eastern city. So when they quote from the Septuagint, chances are they're probably quoting from the text of their day. It's not just because, uh, you know, the diaspora used it or something like that. All right, let's, let's take a break. Gary, when we get back, I, I want to make sure that our audience doesn't misunderstand us, that we're some how undercutting the trustworthiness of the scriptures because we don't mean that at all. But the reason that we can trust this particular canon is because of the church. And talk about, when we come back, talk about then how this particular collection of books landed in our lap. Okay. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi. And our guest today is Gary Mashuda. And you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. The Coming Home Network International is a nonprofit Catholic lay apostolate dedicated to helping Protestant clergy and laity come home to the Catholic Church. It was founded by Marcus Grodi, the host of this program, as well as the Journey Home television program on EWTN. If you are on the journey and interested in learning more about the Coming Home Network International or know someone who's thinking of becoming Catholic, please visit our website, www.chnetwork.org, or contact us at 1-800-664-5110. The Coming Home Network International and Marcus Grodi invite you to join us for our 8th Annual Deep in History Conference coming this fall to Columbus, Ohio. This year, our focus will be on the authenticity of the sacred scriptures as we ask, how firm is your foundation? Join us the weekend of October 22nd as we bring together another exciting list of guest speakers. For more information, go to deepinhistory.com or call us at 800-664-5110. 
Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, joined by Gary. Mishuda, Gary, it says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15, So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught by us, either by word of mouth or by letter. Mm-hmm. And the question is, here we are, I don't know, not quite 2,000 years later, but just about how can we be certain that what we're standing on is true. Sure. Our certainty ultimately has to be grounded on Christ because Christ is the origin. He is uh, the uh, not only the origin, but also the, the body through which he transmits and manifests for us what is and what is not the scriptures. Because remember, the early Christian worship modeled itself after early Jewish worship, and there was always a station where the scriptures were read. So it was incumbent upon the early Christians to have the collection of sacred books that would be read as sacred scripture. And so it's really the liturgy that manifests the true collection of scripture. That's the only way you know is because which books were read as the inspired word of God in church. You know? uh, but if you want to look at it from a historical spec- perspective also, you can see that from the very beginning, the deuterocanonical books were always cited, were cited as scripture when they were cited. And they were never qualified. They were never uh, called apocrypha. In fact, the New Testament never calls it apocrypha. They use the books, and they never qualify it like this is not from the Bible, but we're going to quote from this anyway. <laughs> and you find the same throughout church history that whenever these books are used, they're used as scripture. And ultimately, St. Augustine, way back in the 4th century, came up with the ultimate criterion. How do we know? He asked the question in, on Christian doctrine. How do we know what the canon of Scripture is? And he says, uh, all you have to do is look at the chur- all the churches, okay, and see what they, is read in the churches as inspired Scripture. And he said, pay, and pay particular interest to those books, those churches that were known to be established by the apostles. Why? Because when the apostles established the church, you know, the church in Alexandria, the church in Rome, wherever, they naturally would give the collection of books that are to be read as scripture. And he said, if you look that way and compare throughout the universal church, which books are uh, canon, you will come up with this list. And he gives the Catholic list. Now he makes, he does say it's possible that some small church that's not apostolic might not have all the scriptures. You know, maybe the missionaries that came there were missing a book or two or something like that. But his key thing is to look at the apostolic church because we know what the scripture is through the succession of the apostles. And it's really from Augustine, that methodology in the fourth century, that's really early, yeah. that we find this unanimous witness for the Deuterocanon. And it was his, during his lifetime, that the, the church gathered in council yep. at Hippo and Rome and, and uh, Carthage in the three, 390s, mm-hmm in which we have the, the documentary evidence of this exact list of books that's in the Bible. Yeah. And, and that was in reaction to St. Jerome, ironically enough. <laughs> See, what we, what we haven't said to our listeners is that the, the rabbinical canon, the shorter Protestant canon, wasn't officially, quote-unquote, accepted by Judaism until the early 2nd century, Christian 2nd century. And so you have a... In the some Christ- ways, a reaction against the Christians. Absolutely. In fact, there's a, a quote from a Rabbi Akiba written sometime before the, the Second Revolt, that would be 135 A.D., where he says, The Gospels and the books of the heretics do not defile the hands. The book of Sirach and all the books written after Sirach do not defile the hands. And what he means by that is they're not sacred. So in one fell swoop... Rabbi Akiba, when, he, when they're narrowing that canon so that there's a rabbinical canon based upon one mm-hmm. Hebrew text, he, he cuts off the Gospels in the New Testament, and he also cuts off the Deuterocanonical books as well. Now, let's go to the 4th century. You have Jerome. Now, Jer- by this time, there, there were many different Hebrew texts and Greek texts in circulation in the 1st century. By the time Jerome comes around, there's only one Hebrew text, the official Hebrew text that was sanctioned by Akiba and the, the rest of the rabbis. So Jerome said, well, this must be identical to the original because I see the Septuagint and all these different Greek things. They're just different translations of this Hebrew, one Hebrew text. So I'm going to translate the Bible only from the Hebrew text. And anything that's not in the Hebrew text isn't scripture. And unfortunately, St. Jerome kind of did it piecemeal. He would 
do part of the Old Testament and you put a preface and you say, uh, the book of Sirach isn't inspired and you send it out to some people. Then you do a little part and you put a preface, the book of Baruch is not, not in, a, in the inspired Hebrew and you send it out. And that caused a huge commotion because all of a sudden the, ch- the books that were read as scripture in the church are being, re- you know, they're getting these copies of scripture and they're saying they're not scripture. And that's when Augustine steps in and says, hold on a second, let's look historically. What is the universal attesting, you know, uh, unanimous testimony given? And then he gives the, the Catholic canon. Which is, a, a, on the one hand, um, uh, uh, a reason why the church throughout its history has been very careful on the the teaching on infallibility, mm-hmm. whether it's an individual pope of Rome or an individual bishop or a, a people gathered in council. Right. You know, there's a very clear understanding of when is the Holy Spirit speaking and when the Holy Spirit ain't speaking. Sure. And there was an example when a man yeah. we the church considered a saint. Right. Well, even I mean. His logic was impeccable yeah. because there really only was one solid Hebrew text. In fact, but the church, even though yeah. his scholarship was impeccable, they held on to the tradition that we just read in Second Timothy. And they said, no, we affirm these books. Now, what's ironic is it isn't until the 1940s when we discovered in Qumran that uh, we could prove that Jerome was wrong. Because we found in Qumran that there was more ancient Hebrew texts that differ, and so the Septu- or excuse me, the, that Hebrew text doesn't go straight to the original. It's just one of many different streams that went to the original. So, it, so I think that's a great proof for the church that when you hold on to that unanimous testimony, even if the facts aren't with you that day, we're later vindicated that yes, this is the heart. And we believe this is the foundation of this is that Christ in the upper room promised his apostles that they would be given the Holy Spirit to guide them into all truth. That is the foundation of why we believe that the church had the authority to establish the canon. Apart from that, it was just a gathering of good guys that love Jesus. I mean, mean, really. Yeah, we're up to our own scruples as to determine for ourselves what's the Word of God. Which, you know, in the Reformation, then a group of guys decides which books aren't going in. And, of course, even Luther himself wanted to pull out a few of the New Testament books. At least he didn't like them because it didn't go with his teaching. But, but Gary, thanks for joining us on Deep in Scripture today. We'll have you back again soon. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this program. I hope this at least tweaked a few thoughts. Uh, it's our desire that you be deep in Scripture, which means being deep in Christ as well as His church. God bless.